Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. In President John F. Kennedy's famous inaugural address, he promised to make public service a centerpiece of his administration. President Kennedy helped create both the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps. And most recently, Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg offered up his plans to quadruple service opportunities by 2026. Buttigieg says record numbers of young people want to give back to their communities through the military, civil service, or government. Some of them already are through a collaborative program between three Boston universities, the UNC School of Government and the National League of Cities, a diverse group of young leaders is in the first class of a new service program. Lead for America is preparing this group for high-impact positions in their local hometown governments. These hometown fellows recently completed their pre-service training and are headed off for their first assignments. Later in the show, biking is increasingly popular now in greater Boston, an historic comeback after a 70-year period when the sport virtually disappeared from the scene. Boston's Bicycle Renaissance, How Cycling Shaped the Last Century of Boston's History and Became an Integral Part of New England Life Today. But first, joining me in the studio, three members of the inaugural Lead for America Hometown Fellows class, Trayvon Latimer of St. Louis, Missouri, and a recent graduate of Loyola University, Chicago. Welcome, Trayvon. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. Shandine Herrera of Monument Valley, Utah, and a recent graduate of Duke University. Hello, Shandine. Hello. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you. And Joe Grockmall of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and a recent graduate of Harvard University. Hello, Joe. Uh, hi, Callie. Pleased to be here. Well, I am delighted to have all three of you uh, here. This is a brand spanking new program. You're all finding your sea legs, as are the organizers of it. Um, but I'm really interested because this is a focus on local government, and we don't often hear that. So let me begin this way. Why are you three recent graduates that could do anything interested in local government? Shandine, I'll start with you. Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, I know we've all received. And so I come from a very small community, Monument Valley. Uh, we have less than a thousand people. And, you know, when I left to Duke, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I did know that I wanted any road to lead me home. And it's kind of the communal upbringing I had. And in our Navajo culture, everything is kind of everyone pitches in. And so the fact that I even got to Duke was just me being a product of my environment, really. And so when I heard of Lead for America, I saw this great opportunity that would help me return to the reservation and really 
helped me create this network of young leaders like Trey and Joe that I could reach out to um, when I needed and when I needed the resources. But um, really, it, it was a really inspiring process to go through. And I think that as a young Native American woman, trying to find your way back to your home community is often a really large challenge we face. But I think that for me, I've always been empowered by my community and seeing the sacrifices they make on a daily basis for me to be successful. Okay. And so I've always felt this, you know, mission and this dedication to returning that to my community and doing what I can to inspire my generation and the next generations to come. Same question to you, Joe. Let's see. So I think, you know, my interest in going back to serve in my hometown of Great Barrington is driven largely by uh, family and tradition. Uh, My mother's family uh, first uh, immigrated to Great Barrington from Poland uh, in the early 1900s. They worked in the mills, you know, and saw the town go through a period of unprecedented growth through the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s. But of course, you know, once the mills went away and the jobs left, the community found itself struggling for a new identity. And fortunately, Great Barrington, for the most part, has found that uh, becoming sort of a tourist hub or a uh, an area for uh, vacationers from New York or Boston uh, to come and visit. It's an incredible place because it has uh, astounding natural beauty. It has a thriving culture and arts community. Um, but at the same time, it, like other communities, faces uh, significant challenges, especially with regards to uh, technology and modernization. And so um, I had the opportunity to do some work with my hometown government in Great Barrington uh, during my time in college. And I enjoyed uh, addressing and tackling some of these challenges. But even after those experiences, it still felt like there was work to be done. You know, anyone who knows me knows that I don't like to leave a job half finished. And when I saw the email from LFA and uh, had the opportunity to go back and try and drive those changes through to the finish line and maybe even address new ones, couldn't say no. I had to leap at it. Okay. Trayvon, same question to you. Uh, Yeah. It's actually kind of discouraged for people to come back to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I know that um, with with the high levels of poverty and upper mobility is not a reality where I'm from. So my mom was really like, I don't want you to come back. You know, there's really nothing here. But so I grew up in in North County, St. Louis, uh, specifically in the municipality of Ferguson, Missouri. So uh, after Michael Brown, black teenager was uh, shot by Darren Wilson, a white police officer. Um, and after all the turmoil that happened there, um, that was the first time I really thought about service, thought about, okay, what can I do to, to enact change in my community? Um, because something's not right. I didn't have the framework of mind to think about those things before college. So um, I went into college as uh, a pre-med student, you know, kind of going, you know, for the money, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was introduced to the concept of social justice and thinking critically about uh, my life, uh, the lives of people in poverty um, and how I can have power to enact change, especially being from those communities communities as well. So um, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't know that after college I wanted to do some type of service, whether that be um, in my hometown or uh, elsewhere around the country. But then I I found Leaf for America and their mission really spoke to me. Um, I think that Leaf for America is a very specific type of opportunity. It gives you the chance to go work on local government, but you have this independence to, one, work on your own projects outside of your your, uh, your project scope within your local government, but also it gives you the resources and, again, like Sean Dean was saying, like talent around you to um, really enact change more than what you would do if you were just like in an entry-level position um, outside of a fellowship type like this. So um, I'm going back to St. Louis really just to give back in that independent piece really spoke to me. So, I'm glad you mentioned the individual projects, which I want to get to in, in a few minutes. But first, I, I want to make something clear. I think, you know, 
those of us who are not in government and we growls about it all the time, like anybody could do that. Um, we didn't think like you go get some training for it. But here, actually, you all are spending some time uh, thinking through critically um, how you go into your communities with your project and working with others there to figure things out. So it's BU, Tufts, and Harvard, where you took classes. I would like each of you to pick one thing that you experienced in these classes and talk about how you know that that's going to work for you when you get to your hometown. Um, I'll start with you, Trayvon. Where were you in, in a class and said, okay, this, they're teaching me to do X and I can see how this connects to what I want to do? Yeah, I think um, during our week in BC, when we met the mayor of Ithaca, New York, he was extremely inspiring. Um, I think before even the training, as I was, even I was going through the process of, with Lead for America, I didn't necessarily know the power of local government because I think a lot of people always focus on the federal government. Yeah, but like yeah. the, the mm-hmm. people that really affect your day-to-day life um, is local government. Looking at the projects that he's done in um, Ithaca, New York, and how he was you know, the youngest mayor uh, elected in Ithaca and how he's transformed his community uh, was extremely inspiring. It kind of changed the way I thought about like my future going forward. Um, I don't know if I ever run for anything, but just the effects of uh, working in local government mm-hmm. and working in a local community and how that can reverberate across different communities as well um, really, really spoke to me. So You're uh, connecting the dots, and that's what a lot of people don't do, Joe. They don't realize to get to A to B with this mayor, you know, there's some specific things you need to know. So what one thing have you learned in, through the Lead for America training that, that really stood out for you? Well, I think for me, there are a lot of different factors that drive change, right? Individuals are motivated by different reasons. And, you know, simply with our fellowship cohort and with the diverse range of individuals and experiences that we've all had, we have different motivating factors for that. But I think that regardless of where you're from and regardless of what you're heading home and hoping to achieve there, I think it all begins with the individual and it begins with confidence in oneself. And so for me, um, I'd like to give a shout out to Diane Ryan, uh, an associate dean at Tufts who led a leadership workshop for us a couple of weeks ago. And it was interesting because, you know, leadership workshops that I've been in the past, they say, well, what's your strength? You know, what what are you good at? Are you a good public speaker? Are you good at, you know, building coalitions, work like that? But Diane actually challenged us to also look at our shortcomings. She asked us at one point to go and walk around the room and interact with our fellow fellows and uh, to say, you know, this is where I think I could use some work. So in my case, it was uh, being overly critical of myself and sort of holding on to uh, mistakes and failures. Um, and then what you do is you'd, you'd share this information with another person and they'd have 30 seconds to give you their advice on how you could work on that. And you weren't allowed to say anything back except yes and thank you. Hmm. And so the idea behind this is that with 30 seconds, someone has to be quick, direct, to the point. Um, there isn't time to overthink it. There isn't time to uh, overanalyze oneself. And as the individual who's receiving this constructive feedback... I felt it was so rewarding, and um, the impact um, on my leadership style and on my approach was almost immediate. I got some great advice um, from several individuals in the cohort, so I believe that other individuals had similar experiences with that, and I think that that you know understanding oneself and how they you know lead best is a universal skill, and it's one that's going to help all of us in the in our work. All right, great, Sean Dean. What one experience have you had in Lead for America training that stood out for you? I think for me, the fact that we're so diverse in a cohort, um, we actually have a map and we're literally spread across the country. And so, for me, what really stood out to me was the community community engagement aspect and understanding that there's no one size fit all solution to understanding how to engage with your community. And so, what I really appreciated, and I want to shout out Megan Hill over at Harvard, who's running the Harvard Project on Indigenous Governance, and 
And in meeting with her, really learning place-based solutions are what is going to drive communities to make effective and sustainable changes for themselves. And so really understanding how communities convene. And this is especially true uh, for uh, indigenous communities, right? So we decisions that are important to our community will probably not necessarily be made like in a meeting, but maybe at dinner. And so understanding how different communities function was really important for me and for um, us as a cohort to understand, uh, because some of us are going back to cities, rural communities, tribal governments. So understanding that whatever solutions, whatever engagements we want to have is really going to be place-based, but also understanding that these are translatable across the spectrum and learning how to take what we need back to our communities, but also staying open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, for me, was my biggest takeaway. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Trayvon Latimer, Shandeen Herrera, you just heard her, and Joe Grockmal. All three of them are part of a Lead for America inaugural Hometown Fellow class, which trains a diverse group of young leaders for high-impact positions within their local community governments. Now, we mentioned your individual projects because you go through all of this, get all this richness that you've just described from uh, all of these experts and other people that can offer you some advice about working in local government. But you have your own individual projects. So I'll start with you, Joe. What's your project? So it's interesting. The uh, scope of my project has actually changed uh, in the last three days. But coming in, um, you know, I wanted to tackle uh, specifically mill redevelopment issues in my home community. And let me I remind mentioned. people you're at great, you're going to Great Barrington, uh, Yes, that is correct. Yeah, okay, um, go ahead. And mm-hmm. so earlier on um, in the interview, I mentioned that my family had originally come over from Poland um, on my mom's side because they wanted to work in the mills and have their shot at the American dream. Of course, the mills shut down, Monument Mills shut down in the 1950s. Um, jobs were moved, I believe, to the Carolinas, then ultimately overseas. And all that was left were these skeletal remains of an industrial, you know, sort of past that the community was sort of struggling to cope with. And so initially for my project, I wanted to take a look at um, at those mills, at some different potential development opportunities, you know, if they went up on the market or if other developers came in and purchased them. Um, what are some, you know, ways that we could work or that we could work with developers and uh, explore opportunity with it? But as I mentioned, I uh, actually just changed the scope of my project recently because I had this random burst of inspiration maybe three days ago. And I decided to take the mill project, which I thought was, you know, it's a solid component, and combine it with two other aspects, bolstering civic education through the Mm -hmm. creation or, of course, theoretical creation of a a fellowship program uh, using some uh, budgetary funding uh, for, like, the town manager's intern position right now, and also incorporating or exploring um, additional environmental measures that the town could employ. Uh, Great Barrington banned plastic bags in 2013. Uh, Last year at a town meeting, a ban was passed on uh, plastic water bottles um, up to or that were one liter or less. And so I explored a couple of additional options, you know, if that's brought to the forefront, how the town would implement something like, say, a theoretical plastic straw ban um, Mm. that, as we saw, passed in uh, Seattle in July of 2018. And so I framed all of this together under this sort of larger package um, that I called GB3, Great Barrington 3. Three ideas, the third decade, and one future. And so, right, Joe. Okay. Sounds kind of good to me. <laughs> and so, Go ahead. And so, and so, obviously, this is uh, much of this is still a theoretical exercise. Yeah. Um, but I thought that you know, having conversation about issues like civic education, the environment, and development. 
um, were all crucial. And, uh, you know, again, whether or not ideas uh, succeed or fail within this, um, I think it's important to drive the conversation and see where that takes us. All right. Trayvon, what's your project? Uh, yeah, it's hard to follow that up. <laughs> that. Um, but specifically, my project is... Um, so there's a huge issue with like wealth building in St. Louis and um, specifically talking about entrepreneurship, um, specifically black areas in St. Louis, because, um, you know, historically levels of wealth um, between white families and black families are huge. My specific project is to gather a group of young social entrepreneurs. So my specific focus is social entrepreneurship, so um, business ideas and social businesses that um, have a benefit in the community. But those who are in the community who want to pursue like their desires to build a business, um, to make their own community better and not relying on outside people coming in um, and investing in the community, you know, raising housing prices and gentrification and all that. Um, so I want to build a conglomerate of young social entrepreneurs, both current and aspiring, to come together to support one another and become a resource for one another um, and inspiring other people to build their own social businesses, um, but to also target abandoned infrastructure in St. Louis um, to create mm -hmm. some kind of innovation hub. In my mind, I keep thinking healing center, like a center mm -hmm. where, um, you know, you're healing your own community. So there is a old grocery shopping center called the Springwood Plaza around the corner from um, the house I grew up in. And it's been abandoned I think for 15 years. Wow. Um, so there's been no development or anything. It's kind of just sitting there. Um, and in front of it, it's like a payday loan. So you walk you ride past, it looks very sad. It's just a very, very sad scene. Um, but I would love for that to be some kind of center or hub for young, low-income people of color who have social businesses um, to occupy this space and for the grocery, the old grocery um, store to be an innovation hub for that. Um, but specifically used for just low income people to use. So I think there are different innovation hubs around St. Louis, but they're used by universities, you know, people with um, degrees. Um, definitely people not in, in North County St. Louis are not going to those places. Oh, right. Yes, yeah, so there rarely are the innovation hubs in low income areas. Yeah, yeah. So yes, I, yeah. I would love that to be um, mm -hmm. uh, one there in, in North County St. Louis, but also to serve as a model throughout the rest of the city. Um, that's my idea. Uh, mm -hmm. I really want to, once I go back, I have a few friends who have started businesses and um, who are doing good work it. in the community. Um, just to build that network and then you know, start fundraising. And to get so you can really do, you're, you're going to actualize doing well by doing good, for mm -hmm. real. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's my guest, Trayvon Latimer. You heard uh, before him, Joe Grokmal, and now Sean Dean Harara. What is your project? Yeah, so my project was really focusing on engaging Native youth. And this really spoke to me because as a 22-year-old, when I go home, I would attend our local meetings um, to talk about what policies are going on, how we're going to allocate funding in our community. And almost always, I was the youngest in the meeting. And I started noticing that in these meetings, our leaders consistently talk about whatever decisions we're making is to create a better future for our youth. To me, it didn't make sense to want to create this better uh, future for the youth when youth, yes, are the future, but are also part of our present. So we don't have um, young voices in these meetings contributing. And but part of that, too, is this lack of community. And so on the Navajo Nation, we have a land base of over 27,000 square miles, which is the size of West Virginia. So there are Native youth who who are a part of these communities who largely feel unseen and unheard. And so what I would hope to do is to create a youth council um, back home in Monument Valley and have youth become engaged and actually think of the issues we're facing and think innovatively about what they want their futures to look like in our community. And so they would be able to meet regularly with our tribal leaders. They will be able to take classes and learn on the histories of our nation and why our government is set up the way it is and just learn 
learn how they can be active agents in our community. A huge issue now, the Center for Native American Youth reports a status of Native American youth every year. And so every year they see high rising rates of teen suicide, disengagement, high school dropout rates, everything across the scale is increasing. And when they ask Native youth, like, what is the root of this issue? It's always come back to the feeling of invisibility and not being heard nor seen. So I think by tackling this system that we have now and reintroducing youth into our communities, I think will motivate them to want to care about how to shape out their own futures together, but also hoping to promote other recent college graduates to come back home um, to the reservation because our nation is experiencing a brain drain. So by reintroducing this, I hope to kind of myself be involved directly, but also hopefully spark uh, inspiration across the Navajo Nation and really just show our leaders that like we want to have a voice in the um, policy changes that are going on. So, you know, the rap on you guys, <laughs> you're not interested in anything and you're certainly not interested in something like local government as a public service. Make the case for young people being interested. All three of you are or came to be. Why? Explain to them why you're driven by this. Joe, I will start with you. Let's see. So I think my drive to work in local government, again, so as I mentioned back uh, when I was in college, I did some intern work um, in my hometown government in Great Barrington and also the chance to work in the city of North Adams as well doing some property ordinance work. And I think for me, one of the aspects that really drew me in was the opportunity to be creative and innovative with my work. In the LFA cohort, we've been talking for the last month about this concept of convergent leadership, which centers around foresight, service, innovation, and justice. And it's innovation that really draws me in. I love the the idea when someone puts a problem in front of me or a, a question or a project in front of me at town hall that I can go and I can find any number of ways to try and solve it. In fact, I love trying to find ways to make things more efficient than just the normal path. For example, back in January, I was given an assignment by uh, then town manager Jennifer Tabakin um, to sort of sort out this list and, you know, go through uh, a lot of data and try to sort it. And she had said to me coming in, she said, this is probably going to take you a really long time just because, you know, there's no easy, efficient way to, to go about doing this. It's just it's going to be a slog. I'm sorry. But what I did was I got the list and I took a look at this and I thought, OK, well, I can probably spend, say, the next day, day and a half just sorting this or let's let's take a look for something a little better. I ended up finding this uh, sorting service and using that and some of my skills that I'd learned in school with uh, programming and with R, I was able to sort through the list in 25 minutes and uh, oh bring God. it back to her. <laughs> and I, I got it back to her and she's like, so do you have a question? And I said, uh, no, ma'am, I've completed the project. <laughs> and, and for me, it was so funny. It was like, you know, just like the smile, um, you know, I got on her face when I said that. And um, that was for me the big moment. It's like, you know, we need young people in, in local government and in government in general, because what we, we can bring new ideas, fresh perspectives, and also technological skill to the equation or additional technological That's skill, great. I should say. But it was that experience that really um, drove me into this. And, uh, you know, I, I just love being creative and I love thinking outside the box. Well, that's Joe Grockmal of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. You'll be going home to work in local government there through the program Lead for America. Now, Sean Dean, you said you were one of the few sitting in the meetings and your whole project is to bring more people, young people like yourself, into the meetings. But what made you go to the meetings? Why are you so interested in this local governance? 
Yeah, no, it's a good question, and I kind of grapple with this a lot. And I really think that when when I imagine home, right, I, I imagine what I what the future looks like for myself and for my future family and generations to come. And I really think about the community I want is based on everyone having a place, right? Everyone has a role. And so in Native communities, this is a lateral role, right? Like everyone has something to do. And so this is something that I think about a lot. And I think by being in government, you get really the inside look. Um, last summer, I had the opportunity to intern in Senator Udall's office in Washington, D.C. And just understanding the process, it really empowered me. Like, I know exactly where I need to start in government to make a change, right? And so going home is not thinking of government as this far-off idea where they make policies and we have to deal with it after after the fact. But really, by being in those settings and offering my opinion is helping shape that. And for me, I don't necessarily think I don't, when I think of my job, I don't think I'm a government employee. I think of like I am a community member. I'm working with my community instead of working for them, right? And I think a lot of young people, like Joe said, like are very innovative, right? And one of the issues when people think government, they're like, oh, they're so slow. Like this is not going to happen. But in my experience, working in governments where there are a lot of young people, like we are energized, we are innovative, we have this idea of what we want our communities to be. And also, too, just understanding, for me at least, like when I think of my local government, I think of creating a better home for myself so I don't have to look for a better home. And that's something, mm. right? Like a lot mm. of mm. young people are leaving their homes in search for better, a better situation for themselves. But if we can work on making our homes better, we won't have to search for a better home. Good, good point. Uh, Trayvon Latimer, why are you interested? Um, why am I interested? <laughs> um, well, first of all, just to answer your initial question, I think that... The notion that like millennials or Gen Zers like don't care about <laughs> uh, like what's going on, I think is very very false. I think that um, you know we're in the age of social media, um, we're a lot more connected with the world. We know things that are going on faster than like previous generations. So I think our generational knowledge of um, social inequity, uh, inclusivity, diversity um, has increased and is being increasing right now. So um, I think that a lot of young people do care about um, making their communities better, but. Just how they, I don't think they just don't have the avenue or a framework of mind to think about, okay, what can I do? Um, I really like what Sean D said about, um, you know, I don't think myself as a, as a government employee, um, I think myself as a community member, um, I think we should really redefine what government means. Because um, I think a lot of people, especially um, older folk, like, Government is uh, the place where all the decisions are made, um, where, you know, we don't have a say in what they do. Um, you know, there's no point of voting because they're going to screw us over anyway. Um, things like that. Giving the power back to the people um, and, like, including them in the process is something that I'm really looking forward to doing um, and getting people more engaged. So especially, like, young people and people my age who have all this knowledge about social justice, have all this knowledge about how to make the world better, um, but what can they do? And just to show them that, okay, we have more power than we think, um, especially somebody being in government. Um, I want to show them, like, you just you have just as much power as I do to, to enact uh, your own change, you know, whether they, if you start your own business or start your own initiative. Um, there are people who will support you. Um, and I also noticed that uh, representation in government matters as well. Mm-hmm. The city of Ferguson, is its uh, mayor, he, he's white. Mm-hmm. Uh, the board is almost all white, but the town is about 87% black. Once you have that representation there, then people are want to get more engaged because um, the mayor of Delaware, which is a, a municipality right next to Ferguson, he's black and he's very engaged in the community and uh, people love him there and uh, just the amount of civic engagement has increased since he's been there. So um, both representation and just show them that, you know, you can be engaged. You have more power than you think. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me, Trayvon Latimer, Shandine Herrera, and Joe Grockmall, and all three of them are part of Lead for America's inaugural hometown fellow class, which aims to build stronger and more inclusive communities by training diverse young leaders for high-impact local government positions. So, you know, the people that I have had the, uh, the privilege of meeting through the years who have been a part of a public service initiatives like this as the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps, and even those that are modeled on that framework like Teach for America, are forever changed. Um, no matter what they do after this program, they are forever changed. In your case, you're going home with specific things that you're doing um, and, you know, so you, you know somewhat of, of what happens after, the, after you've uh, finished the training of the program. But I'm wondering if you look ahead and think, um, you know, what your life will be like because you've chosen a path of public service. And how do you speak to people who are feeling a little bit overwhelmed that we're in such a time of divisiveness that public service and government feels as though it would not be satisfying, um, you know, to other people. We, we now know why you want to do it. But what do you say to people to sort of get them to rethink being a part of their communities, as Shandine says, make your community better because that's where you want to be, all of the things that you've said? Um, Joe, I'll let you start. Well, I think I'd respond to that with the saying um, that Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm -hmm. And what I think I'd say to people who are a little bit cynical about this potentially is start local. Take a look at any, you know, vacancies in your home community, even for uh, committees. I know last night when I was doing my research, I saw that there were a number of them in my hometown. Um, the spots are open. You know, I think that if you want to have the impact, get involved. See what it's all about. If it's not for you, then it's not for you. But um, but having that opportunity to start local where the changes are more immediate, uh, more directly impact you, and, um, you know, where you can actually have your, your voice directly heard – I think that's a great starting point to begin to uh, to rebuild things. Um, it, I'm also reminded of uh, at my commencement, I just graduated from Harvard back in May, and um, I remember Al Gore was speaking, and he was specifically uh, describing renewable energy and uh, looking at environmental change and addressing global warming. And uh, a line that he used at the end, and I love this one, is, for those of you out there who have lost hope, Remember, hope is itself a renewable resource. Wow. And I think the same applies here with uh, government, with people's faith in it. Start small. Don't try to, you know, completely overhaul the system in one day. But but take steps. Move towards it. Be smart about how you do it. Start on a local committee. Maybe run for the New England guy in me is about to come out with the select board <laughs> or run for city council or, or even, uh, if nothing else, encourage your neighbors to, to go out and vote or simply go out and vote yourself. Um, I think that's how you address this. And I think people, once they engage with government systems like this, I think it grows on you. I think you, uh, you realize that you can have an impact. And over time, that cynicism just will naturally start to melt away. Um, but I think, uh, you know, start small, mm -hmm. take, take good, smart steps and see where that takes you. Shandine. Yeah, no, this is a brilliant answer. And I was just reminded of, you know, I think the moment for me was being home and I would always grapple with decisions, right? Like, should I go to Duke? Should I not? Should I be involved? Like, it, like there was just all these like moments in my life where I was trying to make really hard decisions. And obviously one of those is should I go into the public service? And I had this one elder in my community um, tell me, and it kind of has stuck with me since, he told me that you need to have a seat at the table because if you're 
you're not there, you're on the menu. <laughs> and so I always think of that, right? Like, it's so important, like Trey mentioned, to have representation. And, like, how can I complain about policies that are detrimental to my community if I'm not intentionally placing myself in those meetings to advocate for my people? And that representation, again, if you look at the Congress staff, out of the 9,000 staff members, there are only 36 Native American staffers. So for me, it's about representation and it's about understanding the larger concepts of these frameworks and really being an advocate for your community, but really for yourself, right? And so if there are aspects of the government that that speak to you and that you have the knowledge and the passion to try and change, then like go for it. Like Joe said, like we're young, we have energy, we're innovative, <laughs> we want to like change things up and like now is a great time to do that. And so it's really just understanding the broader implications of it and really realizing the power you have in your voice. Trayvon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with all the optimism. I love positivity and like <laughs> thinking positive about government. Um, I do think that's a very difficult question, though, on as far as how people trust government. And um, is that something I can interact with? Because um, just speaking of like just black communities in general, um, just the history of the government just screwing people over, you know, um, you know, from slavery to the civil rights movement to, to you know, Jim Crow and all that. Um, I think that there's a history of don't trust the government. Don't trust the white people in government. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. just, you're, not, you're not supposed to do that. Um, so I think, like, uh, I talk about representation again. Um, I think there is some responsibility on government, you know, to engage more with the community. Um, we should be knocking on people's doors. We should be um, having town hall meetings um, in certain locations, you know, not just a place where it's inaccessible. Um, I think that if government is not engaged with the people, then it's kind of hard to build that trust. Um, because I think... Also, I think people uh, don't really understand, like, just the framework of, of government. I think when people think of government, they think of, oh, police, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the bad mayor, um, you know, I uh, gas is too high. You know, they're mm -hmm. linking all these things that are wrong and, mm -hmm. like, placing it on government. So once, um, you know, civic education, I think, is important on, like, what government does. Um, and just engagement from government, I think, is, is an important step. But, um, I mean, honestly, I don't have, like, a, a, an answer <laughs> for that because I think it's <laughs> extremely complicated. Yeah. And, um, and I'm very hopeful about about. Um, trust in government, but um, there's a long way ahead of us. Well, I would say for everybody uh, listening to you three that we're feeling inspired that the next level of leadership in local government and beyond is going to be in good hands. So I thank you and good luck to all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. For the next two years, Trayvon Latimer will be serving in economic development for his home community of St. Louis, Missouri. Sean Dean Herrera will be working in Navajo tribal government in Monument Valley, Utah. And Joe Grockmaw will be serving in his hometown of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. All three are in the inaugural class of Lead for America. Coming up, at one point in time, Boston was the bicycling hub of the country. But later, the sports popularity dropped off almost completely for 70 years. Now local residents are enthusiastically riding for fun and responding to numerous campaigns in Boston promoting bicycling as a way to protect the environment by getting more cars off the road. Is this a return to the time of Boston's bicycle craze? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Daisy. 
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. All for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you'll look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. You're listening to Nat King Cole singing Daisy Bell or Bicycle Built for Two by English composer Harry Dacre. Dacre wrote the famous tune in 1892 after bringing his bike on a trip to the U.S. It was the height of the American cycling craze and Boston served as the hub of the country's two-wheeled obsession. Then abruptly, Greater Boston's biking obsession faded for about 70 years. Since the 1970s, the city has played catch-up in building bike safety and infrastructure, resulting in multiple bike-related deaths in the city each year. What role did cycling play in shaping both the last century of the city's history and in making biking a more integral part of New England life today? Here to help us answer those questions, Boston's foremost bicycle historian, Lorenz Finnison. He is the author of two books on Boston's bicycle history. The latest is Boston's 20th Century Bicycling Renaissance. Welcome, Larry. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Callie. Well, I'm glad to have you. Actually, I should say welcome back because we, you were here for your first book as well. Also joining me, Becca Wolfson, Executive Director of the Boston Cyclist Union. Hello, Becca. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you both. So, Lorenz, let's start with this latest book. The first one, you really went back in history at the very beginning to reveal some stories that I, I think a lot of people in Boston just didn't know. First of all, I didn't really know that Boston was the hub of this craze called bicycling at the time. And you demonstrated that and also talked very much about how there were all kinds of folks who were bicycling, you know, black folks and others during the time, something, a story that I did not um, hear about either. So that was so vibrant. So take us from that vibrant period where all this stuff is happening and people are into it and it feels like it's a permanent fixture of the greater Boston landscape and then it goes away. <laughs> what happened? It sure did. <laughs> uh, well, it's a long story, but I'll give you the short version, which is that uh, the uh, old elite that had gotten into bicycling in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, bicycling expanded way beyond them, and they decided after a while, hey, I don't need to go outside the city and uh, get away from all these people because they're following me out there. And uh, so what they ended up doing is abandoning bicycling and take took up the country clubs and other means of getting away from the uh, smells and sounds of the big city. And why did that not happen in other places? Since Boston was so, at the time it seems, so excited about bicycling, other cities seemed to have kept the interest in this sport, but... Why, did, why was there such a huge gap in Boston? Well, actually, a lot of other cities uh, did abandon bicycling, but uh, not to quite the same degree. For example, the New York, uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia area always had a large enough population to support uh, some elite bicycling clubs, bicycle racing clubs, for example. But they virtually died in Boston uh, after the turn of the century. So I should give me a pause right here to let people know that this was not, you know, your first job. <laughs> you know, you actually are trained as a as a psychologist and and you got interested in it because you're a bicycler. 
I am a bicycler. <laughs> I'm uh, an amateur historian uh, and a public health person. And I thought a lot about uh, health risks and disparities. And then I started thinking about how do we get more people into exercise? And it seemed like a good can uh, a good candidate was uh, bicycling and liking it myself and liking history. I thought, let's put those two things together. And then I came across a central figure in my first book, Kitty Knox, a biracial young woman of Boston and uh, relatively unknown after that. And I said, well, let's resurrect her history. And that really formed the, the fulcrum of the, the first book, her story. So what was it at the end of that book? So you told those stories. We got the sense of what was happening so vibrantly here at the time that, that, that left you at the end of the book saying there's more to this. And in fact, there's more to this that ends up shaping the city as well as the sport. Well, uh, at the end of that, as I said, the uh, uh, bicycling really declined, and then it began to come back a little bit. The manufacturers decided they would market to kids, kids' bikes, and uh, after a while, the adult bicycling craze came back as well in the uh, 1930s briefly with the bike trains, and then in the 1970s, Particularly the year 1970 uh, strikes me as a being an important one because that was Earth Day, 1970. And that really put uh, environmentalism on the map. And uh, people could see how they could improve both personal health and environmental health with the bicycle. So uh, let me move over to you, Becca Wolfson, Executive Director of the Boston Cyclist Union. How did you come to embrace bicycling first? Yeah, I guess my personal story, the bike provided freedom for me when I was a child of two very overprotective parents who didn't want me to to go too far on foot. Um, they were actually more comfortable with me and, and I was more comfortable riding around on a bike. If I encountered some kind of danger, I could get away more quickly. And, and it quickly provided me a sense of freedom and access. I would bike to my friends' houses, bike to, you know, the places that kids go to Brugger's and the pizza shop down the street. And as a fifth grader, when I was actually in my first crash, I skid on some gravel, broke my wrist and skinned my face. And my parents were horrified. And when I was at the doctor's office, I said, when can I ride again? <laughs> and and that's become a theme in my life. Every time I'm, uh, you know, taken off the bicycle, it's when can I get back on? I moved to Boston after living on Cape Cod doing environmental work where I had a 19-mile commute. It took 45 minutes in each direction, and I realized I'm really unhappy sitting in this car for an hour and a half every day and, and wanted to be someplace where I could use a bike and public transportation to get around, bringing me here to the city. So you're sort of the living embodiment of what Larry just said, the combination of people becoming interested in both the environment and also their physical health and, and what could happen. So I'm wondering when you became active in um, thinking about, you know, bicycling as a larger outside of yourself, you know, as, a, as representing a group. And what is the thing that struck you? Larry, I don't expect you to have the detailed history that Larry has here in the book in the 20th century, but what's the pivotal point for you when you realize there's more to this story than just my cycling and even a few other people's cycling? There's there's a lot of other issues to discuss about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the joy of bicycling, the environmental movement, and the access will continue to be a theme for me and, and have been. So when I first moved to the city in uh, 2012, in 
the October of that year, I was in my first crash in the city. I was traveling straight on Beacon Street in Somerville, and a car coming from the opposite direction turned left in front of me. And I hit that car, got in a crash, and hurt my knee fairly badly and was off my bike for six weeks. And I found out shortly after that the Boston Cyclist Union, the organization that I now run that advocates for streets to be safer for biking in, in Metro Boston, was had an active campaign to bring protected bike lanes, which are uh, the ideal infrastructure to encourage people and provide them a safe space to bike. Uh, the Boston Cyclist Union had a campaign to bring protected bike lanes to Beacon Street in Somerville along the stretch where I was hit. And the executive director at the time heard my story, said, you are hit here. This is preventable. We have infrastructure that can, you know, prevent these crashes from happening. You should come to the next public meeting and tell your story. And what year was that when you were hit? 2013. 2013. So let me go back to you, uh, Larry, because what you articulate in your book, in the chapter particularly about activism and bicyclists, is very interesting because as people like Becca much earlier, started talking about, well, wait a minute, let's look at where are the green spaces, where are cars driving, how can we all interact together? There was a rise, you say, from neighborhood activism, such as Becca experienced, to a broader kind of activism about bicycling itself. Well, that's true. Actually, the activism goes all the way back into the 1890s uh, when cyclists tried to get a uh, path across Boston Common. And they failed miserably because the residents of the Back Bay rose up in righteous indignation to tell them that they weren't going to do any such thing, and they didn't. And that whole movement didn't come back again until after 1970, until the Renaissance began, and people began to think about commuting, how they were going to get to and from work uh, in a safe kind of a way, in a safe kind of a way. Mm -hmm. That and also the whole idea Becca's already brought up a little bit, which is an idea of multimodal transportation and how we could uh, get various institutions like the T to accept bikes on the subway trains and on the commuter rail. And that was a huge struggle in the 1980s as well. So there was a lot of action around that, and it's gone on year after year after year. And then up to and including all the struggles to get uh, the abandoned rail lines converted to bike paths, of which the Minuteman Commuter Bikeway is a foremost example. But those struggles have gone on forever, and it's been a real problem because of the opposition of uh, abutters to the conversions of those uh, rail lines to, uh, to bikeways. Abutters have thought that criminals would use the bikeways to get in and out of their neighborhoods and steal television sets and whatever, which is kind of a ludicrous idea that to see somebody stealing a TV set and lugging it away on their bike. But nevertheless, that was a common fear among uh, uh, people who resisted the bicycle paths. Now, it appears to me from the outside that the resistance in Boston is particularly intense because when I talked with you about your first book several years ago, there was the renaissance, if you will, was happening around the country. Boston was nowhere on a list about bikeable cities or cities that embraced biking, but places like Seattle were. And that was about the time that Nicole Friedman was named the bike czar, the first bike czar, and she 
you know, toiled in that job for seven years. And I think probably changed a lot of minds before she then went to Seattle. <laughs> By the way, she's back now in she's Newton <laughs> yeah, uh, doing some work. But my point is, was Boston's anti-biking intensity higher, deeper than it seemed in other places? I guess if I can yeah. interject mm-hmm. here, I think what Larry was just describing about you know, opposition to bike paths and people thinking it will bring those people to my neighborhood is something that, you know, in the urban planning, transportation planning spheres, we consider NIMBYism, Mm. which stands for not in my backyard. And I think most folks might be familiar with that term. And and that often leads to bike lash, which is another term that advocates and activists think about a lot where there's backlash to a new bike lane or a new bike facility. And from, you know, what I see, it's definitely not unique to Boston. There is a a group of folks in New York City who've created a guide how to combat bike lash. And there are these very prescriptive signs that you see and ways that people say, oh, you know, my best friend's a cyclist. I really care about people who bike. But just taking away that travel lane or those parking spaces is just a bad idea because it impacts me and it impacts other people. And there's this way to sort of otherize people who bike and to to try to, to keep and claim space for cars is really what it comes down to. With a, a bike path and the nimbyism, that might be a, a railway and a different type of right-of-way. But often there are trade-offs to adding bike mm-hmm. infrastructure and it's taking away parked cars or taking away space for cars to drive. And, you know, as we're in this congestion crisis, climate crisis, which is getting worse and worse, we have to make trade-offs. And and that's something, again, also not unique to Boston. We're seeing in cities across the country, across the globe. Okay. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are bicycle historian Larry Finnison, Lorenz Finnison, and Boston Cyclist Union Executive Director Becca Wolfson. We're discussing Larry's latest book, Boston's 20th Century Bicycling Renaissance and the State of Cycling in Boston Today. So I will say, you know, I'm a big supporter of people who want to ride bikes. I've been very excited about the hub bikes because I keep saying I'm going to get on one. I'm really going to get on one. But I will tell you, when those two bike lanes went on Brattle Street in Cambridge, Becca, I wanted to come and kill all of you. (laughs) I mean, it is so, it's two lanes. It's not one. It's hard. That's a hard one. But the rest of the streets I have not found so difficult. One lane makes sense. I like I like the way they used to have Western Avenue where the cars faced out so you wouldn't get smacked in the door, as I know it's happened to you many times when people open their door. These are all good things, but... You know, I don't want to sound like I had learned a word in Larry's book, an autoist, but <laughs> but come on, you know, it's a little give and take. You may right? be. <laughs> I may be. All right. I'd love to get you on a bike and, and go for a ride in the city. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, so I'm just saying that, it, that I understand the tension there. And there's still a lot unresolved, as you say, in your book. And remember, we're talking 20th century in your book and we're 21st century is what Becca is reflecting as well. Well, that's that's certainly true, and uh, but the the whole argument goes back to the notion that the streets are a public way, and historically that's meant a public way for everyone. And uh, what happened at a certain point of time is that the autoists said, "Okay, clear the way for us. Clear all the kids playing in the street out of the street." Clear all the wagons away and out of the street. Clear all the bicycles away and out of the street. And while you're at it, clear the buses away and clear them out of the street. As, for example, happened on Blue Hill Avenue that used to have a streetcar line. Mm. 
and does no longer. Why? Because the, the uh, transportation people at that time were trying to clear the way for autos coming in from the suburbs to go right up Blue Hill Avenue and then into the city. So that uh, this struggle has a very, very long history, and it continues to this day. And it's all about who has rights to the road mm -hmm. and how those rights get shared. Well, I want to just say something. I think that there are, now you have a larger group of supporters outside of those who cycle. And primarily because of the climate change and environment push. I think that there are a number of people who are never getting on a bicycle but really believe something has to change with these car emissions. Becca, you're nodding your head. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We know that in Massachusetts, 40 percent of our carbon emissions are coming from the transportation sector. Again, we need to get people out of cars and they need other options that are affordable, accessible and safe. The MBTA prices just went up. We see that as a, a huge problem that could be a deterrent for people to continue on public transportation. If they own a car, they might continue drive that instead. Uh, you know, we are very excited about the proliferation of blue bikes, the the regional bike share system in Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, and Brookline. It's been growing every year uh, since when it started in Boston in 2011. And it's really allowed access to, to biking to change and the image of who bikes. You know, some people won't choose to get on a bike if they don't think that people like them do mm. ride bikes. Mm -hmm. And so blue bikes, we, we really saw in Boston and, and historically that when more people had access, more women were biking, more people were biking in communities of color, more younger college students had access, tourists had access. So it wasn't, you know, white, strong men in spandex. It was really <laughs> people in business suits and dresses and every image that you could imagine. And the more we diversify who has access to our streets through providing safe places and, and bike share, the more that population of people who choose to bike will grow. And in really exciting news, Blue Bikes every day is announcing that they're smashing records of the number of people yeah, who are really taking are. trips. Yeah. I think 12,000 people took a trip on a Blue Bike in a single day last week. It's incredible. Yeah, because it, it feels like it's something you could at least try because it's sitting right there. It's a great gateway. Larry, what do you think is one of the key lessons to learn from the 20th century renaissance um, going into the 21st century in terms of biking now? And I did note in your book that you, you said that the membership of cycling clubs is aging, and you were a little bit concerned about that, but it could be replaced by younger riders responding to social media and some of these different modes of communication. It certainly could be, and it may be that uh, the younger riders are simply not joining clubs the way the young riders of the 1970s did. It's that whole cohort effect mm -hmm. that was going on there. And now they're aging. Many of them are in their 70s and 80s. And uh, they're not replacing them within the clubs uh, by younger riders, particularly. Uh, but as we say, it may be that they're not joining clubs, but are still getting out there and uh, going on Meetup and various other social media and uh, meeting up in that way. Uh, I will say that one of the, uh, to me, troubling spots is the degree to which the Republican Party, not to get too political about it, but has are, really but become, <laughs> yeah. well, it's yeah. really uh, <laughs> gone against environmentalism and uh, its connections to uh, bicycling. I've uh, heard of a Republican congressman saying, you know, in the new budget, not a cent for bikeways. 
and in that kind of phrase. And that's been a long history around that, all the way back from the days of Senator Ed Brooke, who was a, quite a supporter mm-hmm. of bicycling. Massachusetts, and Massachusetts yeah. that's right, quite mm-hmm. a supporter mm-hmm. of environmental uh, and also a supporter of, of bicycling. Much of that is uh, under threat right now, I think, and uh, we need to fight against that. Well, I think if there is any uh, silver lining to that, there are a lot of young conservatives who are cycling. And if there is one connecting political issue across young people, it's environmental. And so there is a great amount of wanting to talk to each other around that. So we'll see if I don't know who that that uh, congressperson or senator was saying it, but I'm going to guess he probably wasn't a young person. (laughs) (laughs) Over to you, Becca. Larry asked at the end of his book whether this is the end of the renaissance uh, from the 20th century. Have we entered a plateau or will there yet be another one? What do you say from where you sit? Yeah, you know, we're seeing all the time that people are turning to the bicycle as not just their transportation, but their identity. And our membership is growing every year. And we have people who want social rides. Also, of course, you know, I I will always continue to emphasize infrastructure. We know if you build it, they will come. If there's a safe place, if there's someone who doesn't feel comfortable riding in between parked cars and moving traffic who does? Some people are, you know, strong and fearless enough that they'll do it. Most people won't ride until they're on a separated facility. So, you know, we work, we engage with citizens to become activists and actively engaged to speak up, to ask their elected leaders for more separated bike lanes so that we can turn more people into regular riders. We know we've been benefiting for a long time um, from safety and numbers. So without the if you build it, they will come. We're now getting to the okay. they've come. You have to build it. So, you know, the more people that do ride, even in the absence of safe, connected bike facilities, uh, the more will continue to ride and the more pressure there'll be for that infrastructure. So, Becca, I take that as a yes, the renaissance continues. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Lorenz Larry Finnison is bicycle historian and the author of Boston's 20th Century Bicycling Renaissance, which is on sale in bookstores and online now. And Becca Wolfson is the executive director of the Boston Cyclist Union. We leave you with Cycling is Fun by Shonen Knight. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you.